Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Shared Ireland podcast. So today I am joined by the North Witch on Twitter. Um, her real name is Hannah and I suppose as everyone listening to this will understand social media can be um, a rather hostile place at times even though it does a lot of good and it gives people an opportunity to voice their opinions. So um Shared Ireland is going, what, I think about a year and a half now, and through this course of time, um, different of our followers, I suppose, um, have been in contact with us um, publicly and privately, and um, it's through these conversations that we've been speaking to a host of very interesting people, Hannah being one of them, and we have agreed to do a podcast because... I suppose we in the Shared Iron team believed her story was a very interesting one. And we also believe it's um, time that we afforded you, our followers, a chance to come on and maybe put across your views, your aspirations for a new Ireland. And it's, I suppose, in that vein that Hannah has very kindly invited me to her home today. Uh, We're sitting social distancing, of course. And um, we're just going to have a chat. I have no notes here. And um, we're just going to have a chat and see where it goes. So first of all, Hannah, welcome to the Shared Ireland podcast. How are you? I'm not too bad, Niall. Thank you very much for inviting me to be a part of it. No problem. The pleasure is all all ours. I suppose, as I outlined, Hannah, in in a brief introduction there, um, anybody can go on to Twitter and look at your timeline and you, you seem to be a very reasonable, rational sort of a person. And I guess what I do with all our guests is, Hannah, just to, I suppose, for the benefit of our listeners to get them to know a little bit more about you. Could you tell us, you know, how you grew up? What sort of a family was it? And I suppose I'm talking about religion and political mm-hmm. thinking here. And um, I suppose ultimately what and how you arrived at your current thinking. So I guess if I start off, like, you know, whenever I was very young, I grew up the first years of my life with um, my mixed religion, married grandparents, um, who, you know, my grandfather was a a soldier, um, and my grandmother was Catholic. You know, she was part of, like, St Mary's, and she was devout in her own way and it never caused any issues for them they were both equals and both very intelligent people um and then uh whenever my mother remarried i was adopted in um by a, a great he was a great man um who was you know very opposite to what I was used to. He was uh, very much a member of the PUL community, an orange man for many years, um, deeply held Protestant beliefs, um, and that was his whole family tradition. And this is your uh, adopted father, you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I would call him dad. Yes. You know, he, he's the only father figure I've ever had, and I'm mm-hmm. very lucky to have had him. Um, but, you know, his family was originally from the Shankill, so mm-hmm. they... You know, he would have had his very deeply held beliefs in in Protestant religion, um, in being a part of the Orange Order and the Black. And then I moved with them into what was a very what is a very 
unionist town. I think a newspaper recently dubbed it the last unionist or loyalist stronghold of Northern Ireland. Are you prepared to name that town? Yeah, I'm from Ballyclare. Ballyclare, okay. Ballyclare. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, over the years it has developed. It, obviously, because it's so it's proximity to Belfast and there's a through road, you know, the population has grown and grown and grown. Um, but, yeah, I grew up in, in Ballyclare. Okay, and brothers and sisters? <laughs> well, I have uh, five older stepbrothers. I have um, a younger brother, and then from my biological father, he has about 16 other kids. <laughs> okay, very good. So, <clears throat> I suppose, what what your traditional views, you, you took them from your father, as you rightfully said, mm-hmm. and would it be fair to say that them once-held views on the whole, um, I suppose, United Ireland question, on the whole constitutional question here, have they changed for you now? I would say they have. You know, as I grow older, I couldn't see the bigger picture. Um, I was very lucky in where the way I grew up. Um, you know, even though my father wouldn't have been well-educated himself, he was very much about educating yourself, making your life better, um, probably didn't expect me to go as far as I have and actually learning the history of our island and learning why our people are so divided I could never quite grasp that you know um, I remember growing up and you know you get the old wives tales all their eyes are too close together mm-hmm. or you know they pronounce certain letters the wrong way <laughs> I, I like you know I remember the first time I moved into, you know, I was about nine, and I remember it, it was the first time I'd moved into, I would say, like a more paramilitary orientated estate. Mm-hmm. And one of the first questions another kid asked me, you know, was, Are you a Protestant or Catholic? Mm-hmm. And I, at that age, like I have to say, even though I lived in the environment that I did, it wasn't like a thing that was talked about. And we, like, we weren't churchgoers, so to speak, apart from, like, you know, the gospel bus would have come round the estate that we lived in previously on a Sunday and would have picked you up and took you off to Bristley and you'd have sat in, like, this V, you're going to hell, you must be born again. And, um, you're sounding there like a, like a, a preacher <laughs> that is no longer with us. <laughs> I think that's, you know, that's the environment. Whenever you grow up, like in, in impoverished areas, mm-hmm. that's the environment. And like I remember being like, I think it was about six or seven, and sitting in Brisley Gospel Hall. What do you call it, Brisley? Brisley. It's no longer there. I don't think it was what, beside what? the dump. Why was it called Brisley? Because <laughs> the dump was called Brisley. <laughs> I think I don't know. Um, and don't get me wrong, like the the family, the family of preachers. Thank God, you know they were decent men mm-hmm. because you know it was like grown adult men picking you up sometimes in their own car mm-hmm. and you would just jump in because mm-hmm. you knew if you went and sat through it you get like a pound coin and a bag of sweeties at the end <laughs> okay, okay. but it was I remember like having a real kind of crisis at six or seven thinking oh my goodness like am I going to hell 
because you know I'd lived with my granny who had like a wee statues of Mary and Jesus mm-hmm. and the rosary mm-hmm. and her holy water and the blue top milk bottle <laughs> and then I was going oh uh, or like you know if you'd maybe um you know told like a wee white lie mm-hmm. like you know I didn't eat the last biscuit and then you're sitting, you know, thinking, God, am I, is my soul going to burn in it <laughs> because I didn't tell anybody I ate the last biscuit? You, you were telling me, Hannah, before we hit the record button here, that in your estate, for want of a better word, um, that you used to, I suppose, help look after the younger kids. Yeah. Which ultimately, after a period of years, these younger kids found themselves being involved with loyalist paramilitaries. Could you talk us a little bit about that time in your life? Um, yeah, no, it's... Even though we lived in in that kind of environment, we, by all means, were better off than a lot of other children who lived there, you know, whose parents were maybe alcoholics or um, on drugs of various descriptions or just didn't seem to give a damn um and you know i was like i was like the big sister to a lot of a lot of kids um buying ice poles and hot dogs and chatting and making sure people were okay um and as those young guys grew up lots of them got into trouble with various descriptions and a lot of them a lot of them didn't put a lot of weight on their education or trying to... A lot of them never see that there is another way. Mm-hmm. They don't have to live in that life forever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them get stuck in a rut. They'll maybe they'll maybe take drugs themselves and then they get into debt. And then their only way to clear that debt is to join a paramilitary organisation. So and, and when you say they take drugs and get into debt... Because they'd be buying these same drugs off loyalist paramilitaries, is that correct? Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, anybody who lives in any estate knows, you know, that's where you get it. And who was the predominant loyalist group in your area? Well, it's cha- it has changed. <laughs> um, so I would have said, you know, whenever I was growing up, it was the UVF. And then now, it, you know, the area is controlled by the South East Antrim UDA, 100%. Um, there is still, you know, UVF in a different in a different estate. So it's always it was always kind of the way. There's two different main estates, and one estate is controlled by certain paramilitaries, and the opposite is is the same. Um, but yeah, you know, they'll maybe start off by buying ten pounds worth of marijuana, um, and they'll you can get what's called strap. So. They can maybe say, oh, I'll strap you £50 worth of cannabis, you know, and you've got till Saturday to pay it. And Saturday rocks around. And what 15-year-old has the money to pay that? So so I suppose just link, thinking logically here, if you haven't got the 50 quid, then that would potentially encourage you to embark on some petty criminal activity breaking into the house, stealing a laptop or whatever yeah. in order to get money to pay them. Yeah. So it's a vicious circle. It is. And because uh, a lot of them maybe don't have any qualifications, I've mm-hmm. never, you know, getting into a trade school, the closest trade school is Larne from mm-hmm. from there. Trying to get a spot in there is very difficult. 
so sometimes they'll be made a deal that they join and that offers them some form of protection mm-hmm. and clears their debt as long as they do X, Y, Z. Can, can I ask you a question? And it's just listening to you speak here. And by the way, I'm not assuming that you're an authority on all things loyalism yeah. or paramilitary related. Yeah. But I'm just asking the question to see what sort of an answer you give me. Traditionally speaking, I would have assumed that like any paramilitary organisation, that they, they were racketeering, selling drugs, doing robberies, extortion, and their legitimate excuse for this would have been so that they can further their war campaign. And as coming from a loyalist point of view, that would have been against the IRA traditionally. Yeah. So that they could... They needed money to buy weapons and, you know, stuff, I guess. But there is no IRA anymore. There is no war going on. So I suppose the question that I want to ask you from your experience is, why do they still need to sell these drugs and do the racketeering for this money if there is no war going on? It's control. It's simply control. You know, um, it's... They keep these young people believing that we are at war with our neighbours. Our neighbours being Catholic neighbours? Okay. Um, they tell these young people that since the peace process, Sinn Féin have got everything they want. You just need to go and look at the way the other half live and you'll understand that we've been left behind and we've, we're treated like dog dirt. And... What they really need to be, that's the thing, they'll not tell them what they really need to do is look to their politicians, look to the people that they're telling them to elect, that those people haven't went into them areas and improved it and built new homes and made sure that everybody is living above the standard of poverty. You know, they are not going in and making sure that there's kids going to school, that kids have school shoes, you know, that kids are fed during the summer holidays. They don't give a damn. It's all about control and if... Does that, that, you know, that's, that control is self-gain? It is. Money lying in your own pockets? Money, you know, cars, holidays, teeth whitening. Um, <laughs> it's... They are play. You know, if we were... You know, and I speak, you know, from, from that loyalist part of me. If we, as loyalists and as Protestants, were all equal and we're all in this struggle together then why are they living better than you? Why are they not why are they putting a brick through your mummy's window because you owe them thirty quid for cannabis? Do you know what I mean? Why are they asking your child to join their organization to run drugs and cause havoc? You know, there's kids in the street drinking from their ten and eleven years old. They're not out as community workers helping those children to realise that this is going to give you permanent damage, that this isn't how to have fun. Taking drugs and alcohol isn't a way to improve your life. They're happy with the status quo. They're happy with everybody listening to their bullshit. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. Well, you just did, so okay. <laughs> They're happy pretending that the IRA are still coming to get you. Mm-hmm. Do you know that kind of way? Mm-hmm. And what they don't realise, and like I've noticed this as I've got older and I've worked in Belfast and I've worked around the country and I've worked in England and down south, is it's our 
it's those paramilitaries are holding our community back because the IRA actually did sign up to the peace process and don't like you know I know that I know there's still continuity IRA and the real IRA and stuff like that but the gen you know the people at the center of it like the people at the center of the UDF and the UDA the original UDA not the breakaway they never signed up for this peace process they're still preparing for war they're still preparing the doomsday plan or that's a myth that they're putting out there that, yeah like the IRA isn't coming to take your daddy away do you know what I mean? And I know for a fact, even in Protestant areas, the INLA and the C, the continue, continue, IRA, they're still, they deal drugs into Protestant areas as well. Do you know what I mean? Why, if we are trying to move forward and we want things to improve, are we still allowing paramilitaries so much control in our communities? Well, well, would because, the question not be, why is the PSNI allowing this to happen? I'll tell you why, because I asked them. <laughs> and what was the answer? Whenever I said that to them, they said that they know who they are. But until somebody is willing to stand up in court and name them, until they can put, put evidence to them and have witnesses of who they are. So the police is putting the onus on the public here? Yeah, there's nothing that they can do. Okay. And you know what? Like I know a lot of you know, police that would be on the beat. And they're just normal people, a lot of them like us, who just want to make it home. Mm-hmm. And if they, like, you know, whenever you report a crime, the brick's been put through the window, or your teenager's in hospital because somebody's given them drugs, and you know who it is, the police know who it is, but it's almost like they're untouchable. Mm-hmm. It's like the police are like a soft, wet blanket, just trying to keep the... F- that fire down mm-hmm. instead of going in and actually doing their job and I know that's not it's easy for me to say I'm not a police officer and a lot of police officers are well known in their communities if a police officer goes in and re- arrests somebody that's very high up especially if you get up as high as a brigader you know they're not going to have a home to go to mm-hmm. and you know that because mm-hmm. that's the way it seems to work here what I don't understand is I'm 27 years old the peace process happened 23 years ago. Why are we still living like this? Mm-hmm. You know, there's, you know, and it's hard to say that all people in para, all people in paramilitaries are involved with paramilitaries are bad people. They're not. It's a lot of lost people who feel like this is an organization where they can belong, where they can be protected from another organization where they feel like they've got comradeship or, uh, you know, brotherhood. You know, a lot of them maybe don't have any other family and that is their family and they'll believe whatever they're told and they'll so, do whatever so they're told. So potentially <clears throat> we'll go back to that community and if that community had proper leaders and political leadership and bringing inward investment into these yeah. run-down areas, giving children and our youth hope and giving them an alternative, mm-hmm. um, that's how this problem, would you agree, could potentially yeah. be solved. There's a big problem in education. Mm. And I've talked with you know some of my Catholic friends about it. We are taught a different version of history mm-hmm. than is taught in Catholic maintained schools. Mm-hmm. We don't, like, 
you know, <laughs> I even talked to my husband about it. I was like, did you learn about the famine in school? Mm-hmm. Did you learn about, you know, the Easter Rising? Mm-hmm. I remember doing like a very brief period, you know, of the Troubles. But it was like the Troubles from the British perspective. Of course. You know. Yeah. Wherever we were all, we were all bad. Which, which leads us very nicely um, into, um, I suppose, integrated education and in particular you homeschool your two kids, is it, Hannah? Mm-hmm. We'll get on to that in a little moment, if you don't mind. I would just like to ask you, when we are on the subject of loyalist paramilitaries, um, before we hit the record button, you mentioned to me that you were involved in the establishment of a boxing club. Um, no? Um, yeah, I suppose like it was just trying to... I, I was involved in a lot of different youth groups. Um, it was just more so trying to help young people get off the streets, give mm-hmm. them somewhere to go, give them something to do um, in the local villages and stuff. Um, and did you find that giving them another outlook and another avenue... Did you find that a progressive thing? I did. Did it work, I suppose? You know, like, uh, one of the great things that came in with doing the youth club and stuff was a lot of young fellas that would have maybe joined paramilitaries and stayed here and got stuck here found different opportunities. Um, You know, some of the young fellas that would have maybe have went on to join paramilitaries or did join paramilitaries were able to change that path you know and join maybe the army get Mm -hmm. away for a bit Mm -hmm. or move out of the move out of the town that was my biggest thing is like you know if you feel like this place is dragging you down it's okay to leave northern ireland ireland the whole island isn't a big place you know your mummy's not going to be upset with you if you decide to move to belfast Mm -hmm. to get a better job to get a better education and through those youth groups and working with the, we worked with the community policing team, mm-hmm. and that would have really that really helped open, because at that time whenever I opened I did a wee youth group, there were kids young fellas who maybe would have been walking to their friends to go and play Xbox, and would have been stopped and searched their bags would have been searched for weapons or drugs so. And it was trying to show the police that these kids aren't all bad kids. I know you see a kid in a hoodie. I know you see a kid in a hoodie and you don't think of it as a kid, you think of it as a threat. Mm-hmm. But they're not, they're, you know, it's learned behaviour. You keep telling these kids you're going to stop and search them and you see them as dirt, they're going to see themselves as dirt. Hannah, from your own personal experience, are you aware of anyone that has in the past been involved or currently still is involved with a loyalist paramilitary group? Um, of course, I don't think there's many people that live in Northern Ireland that wouldn't know someone who is either been or is still active in a paramilitary organisation. Now, because of obviously social media and, and to protect you and your family and, and everybody, I'm not going to really push much further into this. But from your experience of that person, whether it be male or female, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, what is your belief, how did they first get involved and what was the motivation? Um, well, for me, I think, you know, 
known a, f- a few people, you know, they've just not, they've not been, they've been failed maybe by the education system. They don't feel like they fit into society, don't feel like they have a place. They've maybe started off, as I said before, on um, what they call soft drugs, you know, and then it moves to harder stuff and then they rack up strap debt and you know, maybe they're looking for protection or maybe they really feel, like I know there's some people out there that really feel like they are in an army. Just speaking again from your personal experience about these people that you do know, um, what would their what would their everyday life consist of? Like, you know, I guess what I'm trying to ask is what would be their role and their job within this organisation? Would it all be purely drugs related? Um, no, I would say it's not all purely drugs related and like, you know, don't get me wrong, like these people aren't, you know, just that isn't their full time job as being a paramilitary member, you know, they have normal lives like, you know, some are even trade, you know, some could be tradesmen, some could be politicians, some could be. Some could be politicians. <laughs> are you sure about that? That are involved in paramilitaries? And maybe not members. <laughs> Am I going to get in trouble now? I don't know. You're the one. You're the one speaking up. I, th- I would say, I would say, on the whole, you know, it's all right for, as we say, like middle class, unionist, middle class, nationalists, to sit and look down upon people in working class situations. But unless you live in that environment, and you know. A lot, you know, don't get me wrong, a lot of these people are living from paycheck to paycheck. If they can join uh, an organisation and do a couple of jobs at the weekend, it makes them some extra cash to take the kids to the zoo. And what, you know, when, like, you say, when you say do a couple of jobs at the weekend, I suppose that is what I'm curious about. What are these jobs? Well, that's that's something I probably can't divulge or can't I can't tell you, really, on a, on a massive scale, you know. It could be, you know, like it's not it's not all criminality, you know, like that kind of way, you know. Some so it could be running drugs, but it could also be like painting offence or something. Are you serious? You're telling me that the loyalist paramilitaries are into painting people's fences. <laughs> I think it's, you know, I, I suppose I'm trying to get around that question. It's as hard as. As you know, as what I'm trying to say is like not everybody that is in a paramilitary is a bad person. Not every road has well, led them. Will we be putting them up for a Pride of Britain award shortly? No. No, I would say from both sides, it's regular people who feel disenfranchised with the whole system, who, you know, maybe their friends in it, their dads in it, their uncles in it, or their cousins, their auntie. You know, it's not all males and. These are just normal people who really think they, you know, they buy into the we are still at war or war is coming and you have to defend and, and their see, Britishness and you, have to defend Northern Ireland. You like, see the whole thing, we are still at war, um, that's been pushed to them potentially. Who are they at war with? Their Catholic neighbours? I, I think they don't know who they're at war with. That's the problem. They believe it's their Catholic neighbours, you know. If you look at you know the UDA's doomsday plan I'm assuming you know what it is no uh, but I would love okay. you to tell me 
<laughs> um, it comes such a time where Britain pulls out of Northern Ireland that they will ring fence themselves. The UDA will. Yeah, that's like Sammy Wilson has his name signed to that. Okay. I'll have to send you like Please you know do. it's from like nineteen ninety four. Okay. You know, and it's like one of those things that probably still plays and runs in the background. And when you say ring fence themselves, it's kind of like a you know a lock themselves in and put a ring of steel up, and you know a united Ireland or a shared Ireland or a new Ireland will not happen. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's that they don't find that acceptable because. They don't see, and you know, I, th- I hate to blame like Sinn Féin and stuff, but like a lot, you know, that triumphalism needs to stop. We, ha- we need to see that we're all people on this could, island. Could you give me an example of that triumphalism, as you put it, from your community? Oh, where do you start? You know, like, see, trying to explain to members of the community or like members of the community that I would have grew up in that the trickler doesn't mean the IRA yes it was draped in their coffins but it was made by a French woman who you know and it's meant to represent the green for orange the traditional flag the orange for William of Orange representing the Protestant community and the white in the middle is a paste of and it was based on the French tricolor it's not meant to be something that's divisive like the Irish language you know I'm a Gaelgore myself I really enjoy the language and I teach it to my children and I communicate with other friends and I suppose this maybe goes back to Hannah what you said at the start like you know if this message has been peddled to people that are through no fault of their own the education system has failed them their communities failed them and their potential politicians failed them as opposed to you that did actually do a little bit of research yourself and you're only after articulating that and and that you understand your history so for you you have a different outlook on things yeah i have a different outlook i worked with such a variety of people you know it doesn't mean that i hate the royal family now or like you know um anything like that it's it's different it's seeing that we are a very small island with a tenth of the population of England, mm-hmm. why are we still fighting with each other? You know, and, and you know, whenever you go back into like the Irish language and stuff, you know, the plantation settlers from the Highlands and Argyle, they didn't want them, I say they, the English didn't want them coming and settling in Ireland because all they could speak was Gaelic. You know, and then they had to get their own Presbyterian preachers who could speak Irish Gaelga to them. Like, why is this some become such a contentious issue? And mm. then I look back at my upbringing and I think, well, it's because Sinn Féin and the IRA did use the Irish language in their campaigns. And so people from a loyalist community see that as... Could you could you Rebel also talk, could you, you know? also not say then that Linda Irvine is using the Irish language as some sort of a campaign? Why just blame it on Sinn Féin when you have got a lady from East Belfast coming from a staunch PUL uh, background and she's a massive advocate, as are you, by the way, Hannah, of the Irish language? Would it not be unfair just to blame one 
party or one section of the community? Well, I'm thinking about the way I used to think whenever I was 12, 13, 14 and lying mm-hmm. in roads to blockade cars mm-hmm. or building bonfires. Mm-hmm. And So this was the message, would it not be fair to say that you were being pushed? <sighs> like, there was, don't get me wrong, there wasn't anybody standing over you telling you that Irish was wrong. It was just like a... It was a more, I think, you know, when I look back and I think it was more of a fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Many which, which is don't know how. So, it, but I think, you know, that fear transcends Irish language. Mm-hmm. I know people who, if they hear Polish people speaking, mm-hmm. they would be worried. It's the fear of what they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's ignorant. Uh, but not, not just for your community, by the way, yeah. for, for a host of communities. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me this. Uh, uh, but there's no, you know, like whenever I think about it, there's nobody, you know, we're doing a Shared Ireland podcast here and we're advocating of how we can come together as mm-hmm. people where everybody's culture, like orange marches aren't going to be stopped. Bacons can still go ahead in a safe and timely manner. Uh, just as long as we're all including that space for everybody. Uh, 100%. You know, just before we get off, I'm looking at the clock here and we're 33 minutes in and um, I feel as if there's a range of subjects that you and I have spoken about privately that um, I think definitely very keen to speak about them. Yeah. But just before we get off this subject, and I mean this in a lighthearted way, so don't yeah. take it the wrong way, I still am going back to that wee um, story you told about um, not all elements of paramilitarism are bad and you used the analogy of um of one of the good things that they could do is maybe paint your fence yeah just give me one other good example i know i know it's easy you know and, it, and i it, am laughing by the yeah. way because i find it funny just <laughs> i know it is easy to laugh about it but you know no but i'm serious give me it, one good example because I, I, I understand what you're saying, just because everybody can't be tired with the one brush. I know, but this is the, this is the, the thing, like, you know, paramilitary, you know, if, if some, say you live in an estate like that and somebody breaks into your house mm-hmm. and terrorises your granny, mm-hmm. you know, you wait for the par- you wait for the police, for to, the police come. to come. You could be waiting days, mm-hmm. if anything's done about it at all. Whereas if you phone... Like somebody you know who's in the paramilitaries, they'll come down to your house, they'll make sure your granny's all right. I've seen them, you know, tidy up people's houses, mm-hmm. make sure everybody's okay, and then they'll go and find out who it is. Yeah. Okay. And it's not always it's not always like a violent retribution. Yes. That they'll it's the, it's the fear of their title that could yeah. prevent this happening in the future. Yeah, and I've seen them get people to go to the door and apologize. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Or hand themselves in to the police mm-hmm. and tell the police what you've done. Listen, I asked for another example and I think you give a very good one. Yeah. And a very understandable one, yeah. by the way. Obviously, it's not the way we want society, no. normal society no. to work. But you can see in a vacuum that's yeah. being left how yeah. it has got a role. You know, and yeah. there's other pundits who talk about two-tier policing. Mm. <laughs> there's no such thing. I don't think. I think we're... Like everybody across all working classes is treated with the same contempt. Okay. And we actually do need the police to step up and do their job Okay. in a lot of areas. Right, moving on to um, another subject, but sticking with the same theme. From your experience, Hannah, what or do you think is the suicide rate 
in the PUL community. And I suppose the community that you grew up in, yeah. that community that has been, as you using your own words, left behind by the system. Yeah. Do you have you an experience of the suicide epidemic in your community? Oh yeah. It's oh without getting emotional, it is heartbreaking. Whenever, you know, a nineteen year old child or a twenty one year old child that you you know, paid the fifty P to get them into youth club when they were, you know, five or six doesn't see any other way out than to take their own life. And I have had personal experience with, you know, close family members with this happening and the roundabout you go through, you know, um I have had I have been in hospital with very, very close family member and a mental health team member who has come and assessed him has said that we don't believe you're really suicidal we think you're just here for drugs and they discharged him and within a few hours he walked out in front of a car was back into hospital there's this roundabouts there's no you know you phone the doctor and tell them that your close family member suicidal they're like well if they're going to hurt you or themselves phone the police the police put them in jail overnight, let them out at three in the morning and they're dandering the streets doing whatever. There's no, like, the mental health in this country is unbelievable. Like, you know, me and my husband have talked about this before, how many people we went to school with who are no longer with us. And we're not old, we're not old people. I'm in my late 20s. Yeah. And all those people that you played manhunts and Grand National with, you know, running about the estate when you were kids, and they're not here anymore. Mm-hmm. And that now, recently, perpetuates the cycle I'm sure of you've heard it, Robin Swan and the executive has announced like a hundred million over five years or whatever to deal with mental health and well-being. Um, and that's a, I think it's a five-year plan. Obviously throwing money at something doesn't solve it. It takes um, a little bit of planning. It takes, yeah. you know, different mechanisms and groups to be you know, put in place and this money will go a long way in helping establish this. But in your opinion, Hannah, what needs to happen now? Well, first of all, there needs to be wider availability to drug rehabilitation. So the answer we got a lot in hospitals and trying to figure out things was that the mental health team won't see you and you can't go to Hollywell or Grantia unless you are clean from drugs. So then you get, uh, you have to wait on a crisis team phone call, then you have to wait on a drug rehabilitator. And in my experience, they don't do, they don't do piss tests. They don't check that you're not on drugs anymore. My, you know, my personal experience, they can walk in there and tell that drug rehabilitator, oh, I've not taken anything in the month. And then they're like, oh, that's great. You've rehabilitated, you rehabilitated yourself and they sign them off. There's no follow up. There's no, you know, I'm diagnosed as autistic. I'm an adult. I got my diagnosis that, you know, years ago and that was it. I cope very well. I the old term would have been high functioning. I know other people who, and this is why they get into this cycle is that they have been failed by the education system. They have a diagnosis. They become, an, they literally time them out till they become an adult. 
and don't offer them any support as an adult. Mm -hmm. So if they think that, you know, the local paramilitary organisation is a brotherhood or friends, you know, like it could be as simple as they think they have friends now. Mm -hmm. They feel like they have people to talk to. That's not always a horrendous thing. Obviously, the criminal organisation side of it is, but they feel like they're part of something. They feel like they've got people to talk to, big brothers and or big sisters or it gives them a it gives bond, them a, feeling of belong yeah, feeling of belonging mm-hmm. you know the system is broken mm-hmm. you know i seen recently i think it was yesterday or the day before that um suicides in the north has risen 30 percent in the last year oh yeah i i can't even count in hands and toes close people that have been very close to me that have committed suicide I know people, I, I'm trying to think of people I don't know who have tried it. They maybe just haven't been successful. And you know, this isn't like, it's not a cry for help. These are people who have literally, you know, went before bed, decided that they're going to swallow a lot of tablets and follow up with vodka chasers so they won't wake up in the morning. And they've woke up halfway through the night booking their guts up and that's the only thing that saved them. And you know, I think it's actually really underreported as well because I know lots of people that have tried it. 100%. Who've tried it, they've booked, they've been all right, they've mm-hmm. had a glass of water, they've felt embarrassed and stupid and haven't even bothered to go to the hospital to check they're okay. And even there's another stat out there, and this is coming from the Samaritans themselves, is that they, they reckon that every year, we'll just say if there's a thousand people take their own lives on the stats, mm-hmm. that you can multiply that by three. Mm-hmm. because of, as you say, the unknowns. It could be a car crash, it could be a so-called accident, but, you know, these people... Yeah, maybe... but the other thing is, like, I'm a half a Jaffa, <laughs> so I know, like, in the Catholic tradition, if you commit suicide, you don't get buried. You're going to hell. Like, that's the same as Protestants. They believe, you know, you commit suicide, that's the ultimate sin, you're going to hell. So where do then people go? That's why families sometimes they'll hide it. And they'll be like, oh, you know, um, took a heart attack in their sleep. Yeah, but you you, you do realise you do get buried. <laughs> you do get buried somewhere. like, but no, no, I didn't you, think you, you could be buried in consecrated oh, oh, ground. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I had, unfortunately, a first cousin took his own life three, four years ago and he was buried in a Catholic graveyard by a priest. Like. Well, I didn't think you were allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. If well, well it's a bit like having a child out of wedlock back years ago, you know, it was frowned upon, but thankfully society has uh, moved forward a little bit. Yeah. A little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, the whole um, the thing about the whole suicide and mental health thing for me is that it does no, no boundaries. Religion doesn't come into it. Mm. Your political outlook in life doesn't come into it. But the sad thing for me that does come into it is where you live comes into it. Mm-hmm. Because you do tend to find people in more affluent areas as opposed to people that live in, you know, the more ghettos, for want of a better word, on all sides. Mm-hmm. You know, are the people on the breadline, I suppose, mm-hmm. are the people that are prone to taking their own lives. Yeah. And for me, this is a, a film on society and on successive British governments. And, you know, we have to be honest about it. We cannot let our political parties off here in Stormont either because yeah. they have their hands on the levers of power and on the purse strings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, people in society, 
um, need to take responsibility for what's happening to their citizens. Yeah. And um, you know, it's a it's a very complex subject. It's a very emotional subject, as you said yeah. at the start of this conversation. But it's something that I know I certainly and the Shared Ireland team want to certainly shine a light on more thoroughly as we move forward. Yeah, the the, the whole system is so disconnected. You know, like cams is like you know you know cams and it's not spectacular and then you become an adult and you know drugs are rife like i you think of how many people do take drugs and that is also going to affect your mental health Mm -hmm. but also you're probably taking drugs in the first place because your mental health isn't in a great place because you want to stem the pain yeah and so whenever you go to the hospital and have somebody lying on a hospital bed and you're trying to advocate for them and they're telling you that they can't offer them any help because they have taken drugs mm-hmm. and then you make sure that they're clean so that they can be rehabilitated and then they tell you there's no space mm-hmm. or they're not suicidal enough I know to warrant s- uh, an inpatient. somebody recently that... Um... <coughs> Spent a little bit of time in hospital due to their, their basically their body and their mind just being a little run down, and they were asked, "Would they like to be referred to the mental health team?" And they said, "Yeah, of course." And two year waiting list. Oh yeah. So you know, do people have the luxury of waiting two years when they have got poor mental health? You I know, don't think so. That's the thing. Yeah, I remember you know phoning every day, and they were like, "Oh, they're in training today." They can't get back to you today. They're doing this today. It'll be next Wednesday. And I'm going, I don't know if I can get this person through the weekend. I don't know if they'll be here on Wednesday. Yeah, you have to babysit them 24-7. Yeah. Or you feel like... Locking them into a room. Mm. You know? um, People... And like, you know... I, I remember, and I'll never forget the words of that mental health assessor at the hospital... And he said to me, do you not think I see fellas like him all the time? They come in here, they're not really suicidal, they're just looking for a prescription. And I'm like, he has... It's a very cynical attitude. Yeah, I'm like, he's been arrested seven times this Mm. week because he's a threat to himself or others. Mm. He's been in this hospital, you know, three times. This is his second time today. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me that you can't offer him any help. And that even though he had other diagnoses, that that wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. That that wasn't taken into account. He doesn't. Ha- yes, what he said to me, he doesn't have any mental health problems. He's just here for drugs. I see people like this all day long, and like we had to wait. And like I was sort of thinking to myself, we had to wait to four o'clock in the morning for you to tell me you weren't going to help him. Why didn't you just let me go, and take him to somewhere he could? And then I was on the phone to crisis teams and. And thankfully, you know, he's still here. But it was touch and go. Like he did like he looked me in the eye and he did not care. He said, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't even know who I am anymore. Just let me go. It's um yeah. It's um I don't know what the solution's gonna be, but and then, I, I know it needs more resources, definitely. Yeah. And I just again, we're coming close on time here. Um, so there's another fascinating aspect of your life. Well, it is for me anyway, <laughs> and I hope it will be for our listeners. And that is that you homeschool your two kids. Yes. Can I ask you, first of all, 
were they ever in mainstream education and you removed them or did you homeschool them from the get-go? Um, my eldest, he was in the mainstream integrated education for, he did do a year of nursery and he was in P1 for four months. And you say integrated? Mm-hmm. Okay, just before we speak about the homeschooling aspect, why, two questions here, why did you send them to integrated? What was your motivation? And secondly, it's quite obvious question, why did you pull them out <laughs> of it? Um, because I thought integrated education would be different. Okay. I think I was... What were you hoping would be different? That it wouldn't be based around Christianity. That it wouldn't be... You wouldn't have to pray in assembly. <laughs> For me, uh, this is something that, that is news to me. Because somebody told me that recently, and I found it hard to believe. I thought the point of integrated education is that you brought religion out of the whole yeah learning. And I, like you know I, as an adult like the last 10 years I'm not I'm not religious in any shape or form I would probably say I'm more closer to paganism than anything um hence Northwich um <laughs> I've went back to before St. Patrick landed on our shores apparently you know and I enjoy the history and the traditions of the of looking after the earth and our island and mm-hmm the goddess and things mm-hmm. like that there it's not something i ever force on my children or even teach them about so, but so, I so what what happened in four months why that short period of time what did you say that you believed no this isn't for my child my my child also has an autism diagnosis um integrated education wasn't what i thought it was i believed that it would would take religion out of education. I believed that, you know, it would be properly mixed. Um, I believed, I had hopes, you know, that it it was just, you know, going to be secular schooling. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't what it was. But that wasn't the reason I I pulled him out. It was because it was... Well, it was a a small factor. It was. You know, it was the... I guess I educated myself a little bit more mm-hmm. on what was the best for for my children, certainly. I know like I'm not here to bring down the establishment or no, anything, no, but no. education works for many children but, and is an outlet. But it's one of the for us, that... it wasn't conducive to him mm-hmm. no, and his it's, learning. It's one of the reasons why I thought it was interesting to have this conversation with you today is because, again, privately, you, you told me a few things and it's not until you hear people explain them to me in the way that you did yeah that made me go wow that makes sense and again i'm not putting words in your mouth i'm just starting the conversation and yeah. you please continue it is that you give me an example that for example your child has got autism is that correct yeah. so you know they may be sitting potentially not interested in a particular subject we'll yeah. just say it's science for the sake yeah. of this but with homeschooling and with you being a hands-on schooler, yeah. teacher, call it what you want, is that you can focus more on subjects and interests that they are stimulated by. Would yeah. that be a fair assessment? Absolutely. You know, like, I know what it was like to be autistic and sitting through lots of lessons that really didn't stimulate your mind. Mm-hmm. And i seen, uh, in that period of four months, i seen my child become more withdrawn, mm-hmm. less imaginative, mm-hmm. Um, worried about uh, disciplinary procedures 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, like getting a reminder for not sitting down and being quiet. Mm-hmm. Um, being bored. Mm-hmm. And I know that I work from home. Mm-hmm. I have the facility here to educate my child and for him to take on his own interests. I'm going to ask you, Hannah, if you don't mind, talk me through a typical school day for your two children and you. So I'm just, for the sake of this argument, I'm saying he's get up at half seven in the morning. Yeah, if we're lucky, that's lying. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, most mornings we're up half six, seven o'clock. What we'll do, obviously... We live on farmland, as you can see, so we'll go out and, you know, let the chickens out, collect eggs, feed them water, all the animals. And that's actually part of their schooling, in yeah. a small way as well, yeah, so, like counting the eggs and yeah. stuff like this. Yeah, um, measuring food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we actually tend to do that before they have their own breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm trying to teach them that we are responsible for these animals. It only takes about half an hour. You only woke up, your stomach's not ready for food yet anyway. Mm-hmm. We go out, we sort them out, and then we come in and we'll have a family breakfast together at the table. Mm-hmm. And then what we'll do, I have a, what's called a morning basket. Mm-hmm. So in the morning, we'll maybe look at some poetry of the day. We'll think about what we want to learn about that day. Um, I tend to have a structure for literacy and numeracy, mm-hmm. only because they're young and they need those basics. They need, mm-hmm. they need those skill sets. So skill sets being reading, because they can garner so much knowledge on their own then mm-hmm. once they're able they have exactly. the ability to read. Um poetry, music, language, and then we have like sciences, history, so we'll pick like a topic of the week. Um and whenever I take you into the schoolroom, you or I call it school we call it the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. We try not to use the word school mm-hmm. a lot. Um is there a set time that school starts and school stops? That that's interesting. I we do have like what I call like the morning segment. So I would say you know from like half ten to one, we want to be in the clubhouse and maybe doing something mm-hmm. hands on, like formal learning. I mm-hmm. call it. But whenever you educate your own children, and like even if your children are in school, you don't stop teaching your children how to be human. Exactly. Um. We just teach them in a different way. We mm-hmm. let them explore their own interests, you know, whether it be finance or... They, they, they don't have homework, I take it, do they? <laughs> um, do you know, that was one of the things that we had to do whenever we event, uh, initially pulled them, pulled the eldest. The youngest has never been in formal schooling, but the eldest, we had to do a period of de-schooling. Mm, okay. So that's like teaching them, you don't have to sit at this desk for six hours a day. Mm-hmm. You know, you aren't going to be punished if you don't finish this task mm-hmm. on time. There's so many things that's running through my head here. If I wanted to pour cold water on home schooling, mm-hmm. and I wanted to say to you, Hannah, homeschooling is wrong because your children do not have the luxury of meeting other children of a similar age on a daily environment by going to normal school Mm -hmm. which obviously helps them be a more rounded person interact become socially acceptable Mm -hmm. playing sports and even the rough and tumble of school um, you know having an odd wee squabble or a fight dare I say how would you respond to that I'd say forced association is not socialisation excellent answer 
um, and there's actually a real large community of homeschoolers in Northern Ireland. We go on camp trips, we go on hikes at least twice a week, we go to meetings, W5 does science classes. So there's kind of like a network behind there the is, scenes. There's swimming groups, there's sports groups, horse riding, you name it, like um, even just beach trips. And Hannah, if anybody is listening to this podcast or anyone is currently going through this, uh, homeschooling or is thinking about it, how would they learn more yep. and how would they get involved in this network of assistance and help? Um, so there is a, an actual, they would start off by maybe going to the website for the Home Educator Group. Which is what? H-E-D-N-I.org. And would it be cheeky for me that they could also DM you on Twitter? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. That's absolutely grand. You know, it's it's opened my eyes and I think, you know, me and my husband had a lot of talks because my, my eldest by the end of September, he didn't want to be there anymore. Mm-hmm. And I said, and like I remember promising him, like if you get to Halloween, we'll talk about it. Mm. And it was really whenever he started saying to me, "Mommy, I'm not enjoying this. I don't want to be here." And he was upset every morning going. This is at school. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. He was upset every morning going. He was like, you know, they, I'm not allowed to touch the books. And I was, like, and I'm sure you've seen the library we have in the hallway, you know. M- Learning should be exciting for mm-hmm, kids. Mm-hmm. It should be te- tactile. And do you believe, on. Hannah, that his ADHD played a, a part autism. in this? Or autism, sorry. Yeah, sorry, he doesn't have ADHD. Uh, do you believe his autism played a part in this? Um, I would say so. Like, I have very different views. I know autism is a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that those of us who are at the top, you know, the f- higher functioning mm-hmm. autism I do believe we are the next step in evolution okay I know that sounds very that's a, another conversation <laughs> entirely <laughs> I think it's because we can process things a lot faster and process a lot of things at once that's an interesting a lot take. of people see it as a disability but I teach my children who both have autism that it's an advantage I like that take on it my you know my six year old listen to a song once and he can play you it mm-hmm. you know it they pick up language really easily mm-hmm. you know because as well as irish language they know ulster scots they know french and spanish you know it's it's they're getting to learn at their pace so they here, absorb. You're, you're the woman that i want <laughs> to have this conversation with very briefly yes. they learn ulster scots or they can speak it yeah. Give me, honestly, and I'm, I'm kind of yeah. half joking here when yeah. I say this, and I apologise for that, but give me a couple of sentences or speak to me in Ulster Scots here. Will you please do me and our listeners a favour? Um, or sorry, I'll, I'll, give, I'll ask you a question, yeah. whatever that. So what are you going to have for your tea this evening and the family's tea? We're uh, fish scranning... Oh, I haven't decided yet. We're face scanning, maybe a little bit of cottage pie. Uh, once a week the wind's in. We'll set them up the table and they get a wee scran and we uh, we also say like you whenever I was putting my hair up earlier, I think I said I'll, I'll wake my hair up here quickly. So um, so so they're they're actually wee phrases. So the, my interpretation of what you're only after saying is just Northern Irish speak with a few wee phrases that we're all well used to in our lives yes. only that we maybe didn't understand their origins and stuff yeah. like that is that fair it is uh ulster scots and you said it with a little it's bit a of vernac- a scottish accent it, it's a vernacular um 
I think it should be retreat, treated with respect. Of course, absolutely. I I would get a lot of comments or people re like retweeting and quoting tweeting my whenever I was doing the Ulster Scots word of the day, mm-hmm. and people would laugh at it and mm-hmm. say, "Oh, <laughs> it's just saying it's just speaking English with a Scottish accent." Am I right in saying it's not officially classed as a language, but? Um, I think I'm right in saying I think you might be. Yeah. I it's more like a dialect or a regional thing. It's it's it, not a language as yeah, such. Yeah, but it's like we were just like futtering, like we we're sitting here futtering and of having, course. you know, and having a bit of banter today yes. and chatting away, yes. and you know, my waiting will stay stuff that other kids have <laughs> look at them. I think you know if you really want to hear uh, like proper Ulster Scots spoken every word, you head into Ballymoney. That's where I'm going now. And then boys, for some dinner. Yeah, and then boys, <laughs> they know the crack. They, I think it's you know, do you know what I mean? It's just talking in that way. Yeah. And I didn't realize it was even classed as like a you know dialect or a language I, I until understand. I was working in Belfast, mm-hmm. and I would say stuff to people like, um, "Where are you fae?" Mm-hmm. and they'd be like, "Huh?" <laughs> or, uh, "What's that? Your scram?" And they'd be like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or move your fit. Mm-hmm. And the, it's just the vernacular, you know. My my daddy, he would he really every word he says. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember the first time I was listening to him, he was like, "What's he talking about?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because he would have said it just so naturally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas almost because I had a grammar school education, yeah. Uh, that grammar school education kind of forces you mm-hmm. to speak yeah proper of course you know yeah. but my husband says it's great whenever i go back and visit my parents and stuff you know i'll come back just talking that way again and it takes me a while to adjust and yeah, it's- only natural hannah we are slightly over one hour here and we try to wrap things up generally yeah. speaking in around that time frame because if people already aren't bored listening to me waffle on um, maybe, to me now too. no no not you <laughs> making them listen for more than an hour will be classed as punishment um, Yeah. so to sum things up paint me your picture of a new shared Ireland and why you think that potentially without me putting words in your mouth is the way forward uh, I think what we have to realise is you know we need to stop this old dogma that we're at war with each other and that it's going to be Sinn Féin that will bring a united Ireland because, uh, you know, having travelled and having had lots of different experiences with lots of different people and lots of different politicians, it won't be something that we bring about. Ultimately, it's the British government's decision when they call the border poll. It's the Secretary of State's decision. And I think we have to see that that's coming down the track. Maybe not, you know, within the next five years, but certainly within the next 25, it is going to happen. And why cannot we not improve ourselves along the way, make those friendships, put down, you know, the weapons, try and eradicate um, paramilitary control from our communities, improve our lives for everyone. You know, we're just past the 12th and like, you know, the twelfth day could be a bank holiday for the whole island. Not everybody might in- celebrate it, but given it, uh, given loyalist culture and ingrained part of Irish society, you know, 
ultimately we are Irishmen and Irish women as much as anybody else on this island. One hundred percent. And yes, we can be British if we so choose. One hundred percent. We shouldn't have to make the choice. Correct. And you know, I know that some people out there will think I'm a Lundy for even talking Pro- on a probably. shared Ireland podcast. Yeah, but but I think um, I think all you have to do to these people that would direct that comment at you is it's called shared Ireland. Yeah. It's not called my Ireland or your Ireland. Exactly, and it's, it's called not, shared. It's not Sinn Fein's Ireland. It's not SDLP's Ireland. It's not the UUP's Ireland or DUP's Ireland. Just for on, us. on that particular point where you mentioned, you know, Sinn Féin would maybe be the kingmakers or they weren't your exact words, but in yeah. Ireland. That's, me, what pe- that's what people let fear. Me, let me categorically say that Sinn Féin do not own the call for a united Ireland, a new Ireland, a shared Ireland. This island belongs to, as you rightfully said, us all. It's our gift to give. Mm. And that's my gift, your gift and the communities. Yeah. No political party owns any aspect of anything it's we the people that will ultimately decide yes or no on any future constitutional change not our political parties yeah and i think that's very important message and it's by getting people like you onto our podcast and letting your voice be heard and your lived experiences and your aspirations for yourself and your children you know that we are in control of our own destiny here yeah and it's by having these Civilized, I'd like to think, conversations between someone like myself, who is not from the PUL community, and someone like yourself. And, you know, was there any cursing or swearing here today? No. We won't agree on everything. Yes. But, you know, learning to compromise and agreeing respectfully yeah. is the key and the way forward. And that's the thing, you know, like, I understand where the likes of young people, like, believe that they are looked down upon and they have to realise that it's not they're not being looked down upon by the people they think they're being looked down upon. Mm, yeah. You know, isn't their neighbours that don't like them, you know, or aren't doing for them? We have to start doing for ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think in a shared like I that's the thing, I, I you know came to the realisation in the last ten years, we are a very small island. We are a population of what, six point five billion in total, tenth of the population of England. You know, they left the European Union because of how much it was costing them. If they, like, if more, I've seen English nationalists waking up to the fact of how much the subvention costs. You know, we have to be prepared. Every citizen on this island needs to have as much information as they did for the Good Friday Agreement. Well, you're on with the subvention there. And I think if English people, they're not saying that they don't realise this, but it was spelt out to them yeah. that, you know, the subvention that's given to us in the six counties, if that was spent in the roads and the hospitals in Manchester, London, um, Birmingham. Oh, you know, I'm assuming they would rather that money was spent yeah. where they're living. You know, like you think about it, like at least two thirds of them didn't even know Northern Ireland was part of the UK until they voted for Brexit. <laughs> Nobody can, like, you know, I've seen, you know, remember Channel 4 went down the streets of England, different towns and cities and said, draw the line mm-hmm. on the map mm-hmm. of Ireland where yeah. Northern Ireland is. Yeah. And they thought Northern Ireland was two thirds of the island, not realising that it's two thirds of Ulster. Yeah. You know, and I sort of think like we're, it's hard, you know, I understand there's a lot of hurt, but unless, unless we, um, well, I say we, but um, unless people don't, in the PUL community, 
we need to be proud of who we are and where we come from. Exactly. But we don't need to build our culture on the hatred of the, the residents of this island. Mm-hmm. We have as much right to this island as anybody else. Mm-hmm. And our neighbours, they don't want us to stop parading on the 12th. They don't even want us to get rid of all the bonfires. They just don't want anybody getting hurt. And they they don't want to see their national flag being burnt or I, effigies. I promise you this is the last question yeah. because we're away over there. But just on bonfires, seeing like you mentioned it. What would you say to members of your community, I'm going to phrase it like that, it might yeah. be entirely accurate, that do burn effigies of people, election posters, and I guess in particular um, the Irish trickler, what would you say to them people that, I suppose, have been doing that? <sighs> now, I'm not so, saying it yeah. doesn't go on to in some an, extent. In internal bonfires, yes. But... I think everybody would agree 80% it seems to happen more on the 12th. Stop fighting ghosts is what I would say. Who are these ghosts? The ghosts of the IRA from 50 years ago. You know, like we... I'm laughing here because when you put it that simplistically, isn't it so true? Yeah. Stop fighting ghosts. Mm. You know... But, But has political unionism not a massive role to play in this? Because, like, you know, without meaning to single anyone out, but I'm just telling it how I've seen it. Like, we've seen Doug Beatty, leader of the Ulster Unionist Party. We've seen Geoffrey Donaldson, leader of the DUP. We've seen, you know, political representatives like Dr. John Gale and um, different people yeah. um, stand at these bonfires, these contentious ones, and say, what's wrong with us? And there's a trickler sitting on top of it. Like, know. You know, like, what's, can these people not see what's wrong with it? But you, I'm not talking about safety know, here. I'm just talking about... There's, don't, there's, don't you get it wrong, because members of the PUL community are not stupid. And we know those politicians are only coming to, to get their photo opportunity. And they'll not be standing at the 11th bonfire, you know, on the 11th night when it's being lit. But for me, it sounds like the wrong message. It does. And that's the thing that the P, like the PUL community really needs to step up and stop happening is from our so-called politicians and so-called representatives using us when it's convenient and just appearing like a mirage to be seen to be doing something and then buggering off again. Like, no, come back and start building decent social housing, start making sure we've got mental health facilities, GP facilities even. I know people that can't even get an appointment with their own doctor. How are they meant to get into a drug rehabilitation program or get mental health support if they can't even phone their doctor to get, you know, antibiotics for an abscess? But when, <laughs> when, when you allegedly hear tell stories that the UDA in the first leadership election um, within the DUP between um, Gregory Campbell, yeah. or sorry... Whose support do you think they rely on? Uh, Jeffrey Donaldson and um, Edmund Putz is that apparently the UDA were encouraging, shall I say, people to vote for Edmund over Jeffrey. So, like, you know... I think they had aspirations that Edwin would be more hardline. Yeah. And then Edwin actually turned out that he wanted to be reasonable. And if you're fighting ghosts, you don't want reasonability. You want to be... I, you know, that's one of the biggest things I always think. Whenever all the paramilitaries do eventually go, and I believe they will, 
which was only 23 years after the Good Friday Agreement. You have to give them a bit of time, Alan. <laughs> but what do you think? What do they do with their lives when they've got nobody to fight anymore? What did the, you know, what did the uh, so-called ex-combatants from other traditions do with their lives? I don't know. You'd need to introduce me to some. But, uh, <laughs> but, but, but I suppose, you know, what I'm saying is, you know, I'm assuming they got on with their lives. Yeah. But then there's members of the PEL community, you know, whenever they hear, I can't even remember who said it. Somebody said like, oh, they haven't gone away, you know. Mm-hmm. And like it's statements like that that make the unionist community feel like, oh, well, we still have an enemy to fight. I think, and you know, I've obviously done a lot of history research and uh, wrote different bits and pieces here and there. And I think the true fear is that whenever the state of Northern Ireland was formed, it was formed that it was always going to be a unionist majority. And we have to be sensible enough to look at that and realise we were always part of a mixed society and we did treat Catholic citizens and Irish citizens as second class citizens for so long. And we need to lose the fear. And this is the fear, is that they will do the same to us, in in inverted commas, if they ever come into power. There's a saying, and I won't get it right here, but it basically runs along the lines of, when all you've known is supremacy, then equality must seem like um, a concession. So you two, know, two tier policing, violence yeah, reward. I, I can understand that thinking from yeah. from a PUL community that they will reap on to me what I sowed on to them. Yeah. But yeah, but sure, listen, I suppose again I'll reflect back to the conversation that you and I are currently having today and ones that the Shared Iron podcast teams had with different traditions of unionism and, and other parties. You know, I think we have moved on. I think mindsets have changed and we do realise my only motivation is not even for my life, it's for my children's lives and my grandchildren's lives so they won't have to be sitting going through the same yeah. rubbish. Yeah, um, and career politicians need to wind their necks in and realise that if they want to stay in that job, it's not by riling up violence, mm-hmm. it's by actually doing their job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Edward Carson, they got into bed with the Tories and that's they thought they had all their chickens cooked and they were counting them. And they forgot what Carson said in his speech. What a fool I was. I was only a puppet and so was Ulster and mm-hmm. so was Ireland. Mm-hmm. And the political game that was to get the Conservative Party into power. And that's exactly what the DUP did. Mm-hmm. And on that note, uh, Northern Witch, is it? Northwich. Northwich. The Northwich and Hannah, thank mm-hmm. you so much for inviting me, first of all, to your beautiful home today um, and thank you for giving up over an hour of your time thank you for slightly revealing yourself publicly yeah um, on social media which um, you know we all can understand why yeah. you don't want to or nobody wants to do it fully because of the trolls the trolls <laughs> obviously um, but I really appreciate it and I know you know there's been a, a lot of stuff that we would need to go back and touch on again here but we will certainly do it yeah. you know in the months moving forward because i think you're a remarkable person i think your story is fascinating i think um you know you've got a, a really good head on your shoulders and you're exactly the type of person that should be more vocal in mm. our society because by what you're doing with your children homeschooling them uh, the clearly uh, bright young people and um I hope you don't think I'm patronising you, but you're only 27. Yeah. And wow, you speak 
with such clarity and and with such passion and you know what you're speaking about and i think um you know you and people like you are our future so well done you i hate taking compliments so thank you for having me obviously you know i did him and haw about it for a long time because it is one of those things where you do put you're you're putting your own thoughts and views out there and you know i know close family members won't agree with the way I think and the way the future of this island I believe is going and we have to all be on the same page Mm -hmm. you know because we can't we can't do it divided we have to be together Mm -hmm. and build it together Mm -hmm. if they want to see if we want to see you know in the PUL community an Ireland you know that engulfs and incorporates us and our traditions and your values and our values Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then we yeah. have to work on it together. Because that's the only way that we're going to feel disenfranchised is if it's going to happen and so, we don't talk about so it. So why not get involved in the yeah. conversation? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen, folks, thank you for listening to one hour um, 17 minutes of myself and Hannah, um, mostly me waffling. And um, you're going to hear more voices from ordinary people in society like Hannah and um, if you do feel as if you want to say your tuppence worth or you want your story to be heard please drop us a DM and we'll certainly be more than happy to speak to you. So thanks once again for listening and stay tuned for the next episode coming up shortly. Take care, be good, bye bye.